Between the Covers is brought to you in part through the support of Propeller, a magazine of books, music, art, film, and life, and its publishing imprint, Propeller Books. Visit them on the web at propellermag.com and propellerbooks.com or on Twitter at PropellerMag. Coming up next is the 107th episode of Between the Covers, the seventh of the new year. One, I'm particularly excited to share with you a conversation with John Keane, the author of Counter Narratives, one of my highlight reads of the last decade. But before we begin, I wanted to alert you that you can go to patreon.com slash between the covers and support the show. And there you will also find out ways you can receive a copy of the out-of-print co-written book Vera and Linus by Jesse Ball. You can also check out the growing archive of bonus material there, again, at patreon.com slash between the covers. Enjoy today's program. These stories are about the id unleashed. They're about the wildness contained in all of us. I think stories kind of have some kind of magical effect in the world. I think it's really hard to live without stories. And if somebody tells you, like, this is the way you're going to end up, you're lucky if you can forget that. You know, there's me, and then there's writer guy me, and then there's me working, which is the absence of me. It's just story. Had no idea how to write a novel, didn't know if it would ever come to fruition. Was working at a vet and kind of lint-rolling puppy hair and cat dander off myself. They're almost like really shy animals. They will come out of the woods, but you have to stay very still. And you have to pretend like you're not interested in them. Artists tend to, like, put their fingers in the wounds, in the silences. I believe in the role of literature as a, as a catalyst for dialogue and, and, and new forms of, of thinking. All the stuff I'm interested in is thrown into the washing machine that is my brain, and it's put on spin. Good morning and welcome to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. Today's guest is writer, poet, and translator John Keane. John Keane is the chair of the African American and African Studies Department at Rutgers University, Newark, where he is also a professor of English and a teacher of creative writing. A graduate of Harvard University and NYU, Keane has taught at NYU, Brown, and Northwestern been an editor, editor at Callaloo, a journal of African diaspora arts and letters, a board member of the African Poetry Book Fund, a longstanding member of the Dark Room Collective, a Kave Kanem Fellow, and a recipient of the Whiting Award for his fiction and poetry. His first book, Annotations, was a book that troubled the line between novel and memoir, with a prose described as having a poem-like compression, Annotations was published in 1995 by New Directions and described by Kirkus as a tour de force of intelligence, wordsmithing, and passion, and by Publishers Weekly as worthy of the highest recommendation, pointing to a new direction for literary fiction in the 21st century. John Keane is also the author of the 2006 poetry art collection Seismosis, a collaboration with the artist Christopher Stackhouse, the 2014 translation of the Brazilian writer Hilda Hilst's novel, Letters from a Seducer. And since 2002, John Keane has also created a series of public and durational conceptual events under the name The Emotional Outreach Project, which has been exhibited in galleries in both Brooklyn and Berlin. 
John Keane is here today to talk about his three latest books, his collection of novellas and stories, counter-narratives from New Directions, his poetry chapbook, Playland from Seven Kitchens Press, and his book of image text entitled Grind, a collaboration with the photographer Nicholas Molnar out from ITI Press. Counter-Narratives was the winner of the American Book Award and the Lannan Literary Award for Fiction, was also the winner of the inaugural Republic of Consciousness Prize for Small Presses, a unanimous decision by the judges who called counter-narratives a once-in-a-generation achievement for short-form fiction, its subject matter, its formal inventiveness, its multitude of voices, and its seriousness of purpose transform a series of thematically linked stories into a complete work of art. Kate Webb, writing for the Times Literary Supplement, adds that the ambition, erudition, and epic sweep of Keene's remarkable new collection of stories traveling from the beginnings of modernity to modernism, place it in a class of its own. Counter-narratives achieves no less than an imaginative repositioning of the history of the Americas. Welcome to Between the Covers, John Keane. Thank you so much, David. So I'd like to start out with counter-narratives and, and this idea of counter-narratives having an epic sweep. Mm. The book moves through centuries over a span of nearly 500 years, it crosses oceans. It takes place in the United States, in the Caribbean, in Brazil, and in Africa. Mm -hmm. There is an ever-present sense of movement of bodies mm -hmm. across time and place, uh, of disparate cultures coming into contact and conflict, of global trade. But while there is this sense of scope and almost a limitless scope, there is really a constraint to this to this project or a framing to this uh, this project. We don't get stories in Vietnam. We don't get stories in Afghanistan. We don't get stories that are a thousand or four thousand years old. So, tell us a little bit about the scope and framing for for this particular project. Well, that's a wonderful uh, uh, reading, um, and your, your, I think your point is a very good one. The the real sort of background to the collection is the idea of the Black Atlantic, I guess you could say, the Atlantic, circumatlantic, uh, and the scope, temporal scope, really is from, runs from the dawn of modernity, right? I mean, what, you know, what, what is the moment in which, when you think about the moment of the Enlightenment, uh, the uh, sort of late Renaissance in Europe, uh, which is also the rise of this, you know, kind of the, the, the moment of proto-capitalism and also the rise of the slave system, right, which really sort of transforms not just uh, the Americas, but of course, you know, Europe itself, uh, Africa, uh, Parts of Asia, etc. Um, so, so that is kind of the beginning, and the kind of end of the this arc uh, for the book is uh, modernism, right? So, what happens in modernism? So, once once you get to kind of a, a moment of a tremendous technological progress on the one hand, right, and capitalism, industrial sort of industrial capitalism uh, is underway, and you also are, we're thinking about this moment right before, uh, you know, the 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 end of uh, colonialism, um, you know, so colonialism is, is on, on shaky ground. Uh, that that is the arc that I was really sort of interested in, and I will say that the final story in the book uh, sort of takes place today. Um, it's kind of in time and out of time, but it actually sort of reflects back on 
all that's come before, because the people who are kind of central to it uh, are people who have been, uh, whose uh, power, whose very, you know, uh, ways of being have been made, po made possible by uh, colonialism and its aftermath. Um, so, so that was, that, that really kind of provides a way of thinking about what's in the book. Um, you, you know, you mentioned, for example, Vietnam, and uh, you mentioned like all of these other, I think we, we can think about important flashpoints, I mean, the war in Algeria, uh, et cetera, that are connected. And I think of, I mean, you know, I think if I'd had like a thousand pages and <laughs> endless amounts of time, I would have, you know, I mean, there are, there were stories that actually didn't make it into the book. Uh, and I actually, uh, as I've, I've said uh, a few times uh, in interviews, um, there actually, I even had a, um, an earlier version of this book that I lost. Um, I lost most of the stories when my computer crashed, but there were sort of uh, proto-stories that were said at other points. But but I, the 13, I think, work uh, together um, in interesting ways. They're in conversation with each other. And as I said in an, in an early, very early interview uh, with Brooke Gladstone, one of the things that became clear is that um, that every story in the collection almost has a kind of twin, uh, and I see this as a, 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 there's a kind of resonance that um, that gives the collection itself um, a feeling of, of even greater depth than you know it might originally appear to have, uh, but also gives it it also sort of expands that epic quality, right, and also allows it to sort of speak to things that aren't even discussed in the book. You know, because when, when I'm talking about one thing, you realize that and, and this actually is applicable to something else that happened in history. One of the things that I really found most remarkable about the uh, about the book Counter Narratives was the way you troubled uh, the notion of objectivity. Mm -hmm. So um, it adopts language of reportage uh, mm -hmm. uh, or authority and then troubles it. Um, you you have stories that emulate historical documents in form and language, mm -hmm. that of history books, newspaper clippings, excerpts of official reports, letters, journal entries, a monograph with a 75-page footnote that is mostly the story, <laughs> right. and then one story that's spoken to a reporter, even right. though it's spoken by a fictional character reimagined from Mark Twain, we get this sense of it being objective in a sense because he's talking to, even though it's a fictional reporter, a reporter nonetheless. Right. And then you use these archaic literary idioms. Mm -hmm. um, ben Ehrenreich says that, that you're adapting the linguistic conventions of white supremacy um, and it made me think also of a previous guest, uh, Yun Song Kim, who talks about the white cube of freedom, adopting a language that regards itself as value-free mm -hmm. and abstracted from context. Mm -hmm. But what really makes the book um, charged and, and com so compelling to me is that you've adopted this form, and then within the form, you are doing everything to undermine it, mm -hmm. in a sense. So you're, you're, the way you frame the story, who's telling the story, what's the point of view, what's the movement of the narrative arc? And it made me think of this idea of almost like you're doing this revolutionary literary sabotage. And there's this quote by Fred Moten um, that you probably know, I'm guessing, but he's, when he's talking about the relationship between black culture and American culture, he said... Yes, this brutal structure was built on our backs, but if that was the case, it was so that when we stood up, it would crumble. Mm -hmm. And I feel like there's there's something about that dynamic that each of these stories sort of exemplifies of like you creating the superstructure almost of oppression mm -hmm. and then having someone stand up in it that 
is making it crumble. How does that how does that sound to you as, as a description? Well, I think I think it de- it's definitely on the mark. I mean, I would say that you know the goal. My goal was, and it's interesting. Some of the reviews have sort of looked at the book and and uh, kind of focused on the idea that you know it's all about oppression. But one of the things I think that you see again and again in these stories is the the kind of jo- at the same time the kind of uh, joy, sort of intracultural, uh, you know, intra racial uh, joy uh, community, right? You know, in the midst of such of tremendous precarity that these characters are, are you know, are, are, um, uh, are experiencing. Uh, so, you know, so, so that it, it's, it, I wanted to give a kind of fuller um, sense of the black experience and not just, you know, and of course the people of color, because uh, we think about the complexities of blackness uh, in the, in the Americas, uh, but, but to give a sense of the fullness so that it's, so it, the stories are not solely about oppression, but they're all, they are, they do have this uh, the 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 other side, which is, or I'm gonna say the other side, but sort of the, the compliment that you know you you get to see uh, glimpses of these characters' lives, uh, you know, even within this kind of larger framework, in which they are a- able to kind of, to the extent possible, be themselves, be free, right? You know, central to this. Uh, collection is the idea of freedom. I mean, what does freedom mean, especially when, on so many levels, you're being policed. Your, you know, your your speech, your your selfhood, everything is uh, so radically uh, and, and brutally delimited in, in certain ways. You know, what does it then to be, uh, mean to be free? And how does the mind itself, uh, you know, kind of uh, seek out and create those possibilities, those moments, those you know, little um, uh, nodes of, of freedom, right? That aren't only just individual, but they can become collective, right? And that I, I, I see as you know, really what liberation uh, in 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 multiple the multiple political senses um, um, is about. So I I think yeah, I think you're definitely onto something. I mean, I also would say that. For for example, in that story, an outtake from the ideological origins of the American Revolution, it always fascinates me that very few people Google that title because the title refers directly to uh, a very, I mean, a really landmark study. I think it won the Pulitzer Prize uh, by Bernard Balin, which is all about uh, the uh, New England, uh, I think predominantly New England, uh, colonists, right? And uh, in the moment before the American Revolution. And it was it was really sort of a, a landmark um, historical intervention because he sort of challenged the prevailing view of you know, what led the colonists to break with Great Britain. And I think he, you know, he, he sort of talks about the different classes of people in that book. I mean, it's been a long time, a very long time since I've read it. Um, he talks about the different classes of people. And, but he's, you know, he's really sort of thinking through ideas, et cetera. And I believe, I, I kind of believe he, I mean, I don't know if he actually singles out any Black people, but but it's almost as if you know this whole component of these these figures who, as we know uh, in um, the Boston uh, massacre, as we know um, you know uh, you know when we think about just the first body given you know American body given in defense of American freedom was a black man, Crispus Attucks, a, a mixed race person. Um, uh, you know that that the Balin and so many figures. I mean, they just kind of write all of these figures out of these people, right? An entire group of people, kind of out of the narrative. And um, so it, it sort of struck me that I mean, what would it mean to engage Balin and engage this history of ideas 
but also in a certain way kind of deflected. So I think when Ben Ehrenreich is talking about the language of white supremacy, I mean, he's basically indicting, you know, the the language of, you know, really sort of standard and uh, really kind of highly praised uh, historiography. I mean, I'm not saying Balin is a white supremacist, but I mean, what does it mean? Just yes, to write, you know, people out of a narrative that becomes, the, and then that writing out, uh, you know, which isn't maybe intentional, it might be incidental, uh, but then that becomes the basis on which we uh, are about and through which we talk about the origins of this country. S- such that, you know, I, I mean, I saw just online the other day, someone was uh, replying on, on uh, I can't remember where it was, but they were replying, they were saying, oh, you know, the United States wasn't, the United States wasn't founded on racism. And it's like, Okay, well, you know, I mean, what do you call settler colonialism? <laughs> you know, there were people here, and they were, I mean, I'm telling you, they were wiped out, or they were, you know, they were, rat- like, violently displaced, right? You know, and th- that's only, the like, a, a sliver of the story. So, you know, how can you say that? But, you know, we, we this there's this also kind of innocence project of a way uh, in, in this country. So part of what I was challenging is that innocence, right? Innocence about our past and about our present. And if we look at counter narratives as a as a way that you've written these erased stories back into the story but using this official language so we have the stories uh centering on the servant the slave or the former slave or the assistant and in in giving these counter narratives you're sort of revealing these counter selves and it reminds me it makes me feel like du bois is double consciousness but like triple or quadruple consciousness because Mm -hmm. we get the the baptized Blacks who have a truer name for themselves mm-hmm. that they're that they're um, that is their true name, mm-hmm. and we have the the crypto or converso Jews who mm-hmm. um, are are behaving publicly as as Christians, mm-hmm. and then we have um, queer characters who are where the the public narrative about them has elided their queerness. So mm-hmm. we have um, all these different levels, and some are some of these. Um, Intersections are contained within in one character, mm-hmm. but I, I was wondering if you could maybe speak to a little bit about language and naming in regards to the constitution of narrative, um, counter selves, secret lives, and code switching, mm-hmm. as it relates to um, you putting this narrative together. Well, the idea of naming is is really important, uh, and in my very first book, uh, uh, annotations, one of the things that uh, happens a lot is I mean I was very interested in this in this idea of you know what names mean what names evoke uh, so all throughout that book there are all of these references uh, to play sites in um, uh, Missouri and St. Louis uh, where I was born and grew up uh, references to uh, sort of historical figures of, uh, often African American but not only African American. Um, References to, uh, you know, songs that I heard growing up, like, for example, uh, last night when I was uh, at uh, Reed and was signing books, one of the students I met told me her name was Naima. And um, it turns out, I said, well, you know, yeah, I mentioned Naima in uh, my, my first book. And she said, yes. And I met Nathaniel Mackey and his daughter's name Naima and after the Coltrane song. And I said, yeah, you know, because I was <laughs> when I was a kid, we listened to it a lot. Um, to me, names are very, very important, you know, because they uh, they they have such resonance. 
what I also was thinking about, you know, uh, growing up in the, as a, as a a little kid in the 70s, was the the movement among so many uh, African-American people to, you know, to ch- sort of change their names. You know, it was the idea that you're getting rid of your slave name or your uh, government name or the, you know, the, la- the name of your oppressor, right? Um, even though, of course, I, one of the interesting things I think we're now coming to realize is that, you know, at, after the end of uh, slavery, uh, many uh, people... Um, you know, many uh, newly freed African Americans actually, you know, invented all kinds of interesting names, right? You know, they they created names for themselves. Sometimes they took the name of the slave owner or the plantation, et cetera. Uh, but others created, you know, altogether new names uh, for themselves. Um, but anyway, I say all this to say that I mean, names carry tremendous power, and you know, not only do they carry power, but to name someone or something is uh, we can say an act of uh, power, but also an act of knowledge, right? So the book uh, is really often playing with this question of naming and how naming relates to knowledge and to power and to selfhood, right? Um, and how, you know, one name may be imposed upon you, but you have a secret name that is a, a kind of uh, a source of um, uh, succor, a source of um uh, you know, a, a source of resistance, right? Uh, and and or or, or you know, you, you think about like sort of with passing and covering, right? These strategies that people use to survive. Uh, I mean, I think all of those things are activated by names. So that was one of the things that I think this is kind of wo- it's like a thread woven throughout. But it definitely is related to questions of uh, power, questions of resistance, questions of knowledge. I think it might have been in an interview you did for Annotations when you talked about the history of St. Louis and were mentioning that people spoke French to each other, to their horses, but not to their black slaves, and mentioned um, how people are critical of African-American vernacular, but Mm -hmm. really everybody has multiple layers of language and different Mm -hmm. contexts in which they're using different languages, Mm -hmm. that um, it's it's not unique to any person. That there's that there are um, switching in in language for everybody in different oh, sure. contexts. Oh sure, sure. I mean, actually, I think I I believe I think it's actually quoted in uh, annotations that uh, I can't remember who the person was, but uh, they actually did speak uh, French. Where is it? Um, yes, a leading citizen. This is Audrey L. Olson. Olson, St. Louis Germans, eighteen fifty to nineteen twenty, and in. Um, this is what Olson says. A leading citizen wrote in 1818 that the prevailing language of the white persons on the streets was French. The Negroes of the town spoke French. All the inhabitants used French to the Negroes, their horses, and their dogs. So, yeah. Oh. <laughs> so everybody, everyone was, you know, speaking a little uh, Francais uh, at that time. Um, but, yes, you know, the, yeah. And this, of course, relates to naming. I mean, I think about, you know, well, on the one hand, there was the, sh- in, you know, in the 1970s, uh, probably in the, even the late 60s after the Black Power Movement uh, took, took, took hold. Uh, but, I, you know, of course, I also think about um, even, probably even before that, because I went to school with uh, kids who had, you know, uh, African names. So, maybe, so I think it was in the consciousness of parents, maybe even from the late 50s on, uh, but really kind of took hold in the late 60s and uh, in the 70s. 
first of all, the idea of, you know, sort of changing your name completely, right? So sometimes it was related to religion. I know people who became black Muslims or Muslims and took uh, uh, Islamic names, uh, Arabic names, um, uh, people who chose African names, uh, people who, who named their children, uh, gave their children African names, right? And then, of course, the long tradition of sort of inventing names among African Americans. Uh, but, you know, of course, you know, we think about how now there have been, been these really sort of fascinating um, was it sociological studies that show, you know, p- people are punished. You know, if you have a name that's more black sounding, uh, you know, it's harder to get a job, et cetera. So I think there's a tremendous, it kind of all bear, it sort of comes from this long history that uh, has its origins in the early, those early moments that I'm writing about uh, in the book. And it's all interwoven. But I also want us to think about, you know, when, you, when we're talking about things like the vernacular and popular culture, um, I was saying to someone last night that it, one of the things that always kind of amazes me is how we're, you know, we th- we, we don't think or talk about, for example, how popular blackface minstrelsy was and minstrelsy was. But that at one point was kind of the one of the you know, one of the chief popular uh cultural uh artifacts of American culture. And the half life of blackface minstrelsy, of those images, of those songs, etc., which were often attempts by whites to access black vernacular, sometimes as a way of you know, a kind of active resistance against the kind of predominant or prevailing culture, right? Um, you know, this idea that you would sort of embody uh, this black person and, you know, in a in really kind of ridiculous mode, but it's also a way of challenging kind of the sort of expectations of, you know, white manhood or, you know, uh, modes of respectability for white people. I mean, I'm, I think that's so fascinating because it, it carries down even to today to, I mean, we, we can go back, let's say, 50 years to someone like Norman Mailer's Black Negro. Negro, or sorry, a white Negro, but then even coming forward today, and we think about, you know, with like the ways in which hip hop is kind of been transformed by white rappers and stuff like that. And, you know, uh, I think about like, you know, sort of black gay vernacular language that kind of diffuses throughout the society. So you'll have someone on, you know, a TV show, you know, would not want to have anything to do with a black gay person, and, you know, and then they're saying, yes, you know, things like this. So, so it's sort of, it, it's kind of interesting how, uh, you know, American culture works and uh, how dynamic it is. But I, but, but I do think that on the, you know, there's, there's tremendous power in these cultural modes that often are kind of marginalized or pushed to the wayside uh, or, you know, uh, basically, you know, that we, that we don't really kind of really talk about and think through uh, carefully. Well, uh, on that note, you had, you had one interview, inter- interviewer call you a speculative fiction writer mm-hmm. and sort of place you within the tradition of Afrofuturism mm-hmm. and Afro-surrealism. Uh, and you've talked about that blackness isn't just otherness, but also sort of the forerunners of innovation that get adopted by the culture mm-hmm. later on. So yeah. there is this sort of futurist aspect to the idea of blackness, mm-hmm. um, not just an othering, but right. but both. Um, can, can you talk a little bit about how you you see yourself in relationship to that tradition, if at all? I, I know you've you mentioned you make a nod to Samuel Delaney, for instance, and um, do do you see your work um, in conversation with sort of an Afrofuturist uh, 
tradition? Sure. I mean, I, I definitely think that, uh, I mean, I don't, that's not a term that I regularly, I mean, I don't say, oh, I'm an Afrofuturist, but of course, I mean, I, th- I think, of course, I'm in, in dialogue with, um, you know, Samuel Delaney and Octavia Butler, and I mean, going further back, people like, you know, Rudolph Fisher, et cetera. I mean, I, I, I think that, yeah, there is a kind of uh, powerful futurity uh, that we see again and again and again in African American culture, right? It, uh, be, in fact, because it has to, uh, uh, it exists both within and outside. Um, it, that that dynamic, that kind of dialectic, uh, gives it a, often a sense of futurity, you know, and suggests that this is what's to come, right? Right, because we have to be thinking about. <laughs> What's happening down the road? We can't ever be too comfortable in this society. Um, so I think I think you know there is uh, there are elements, sort of overt speculative elements in counter narratives um, uh, that uh, that I think you know I think they can be read in in a lot of different ways. Um, but yeah, I, I I think Afrofuturism is is a, is a wonderful thing, and um, uh, I feel honored to be considered uh, in some ways part of it. Like if, if we were to look at the way you, you trouble objectivity, there also feels like a way in which counter narratives is troubling this idea of progress or progressive history. Mm-hmm. Um, so much like the way you adopt official language and the broadest strokes in the, um, it, the book seems to be told linearly, traditionally and chronologically. But the closer you look, the weirder it really is. We get the epigraphs at the beginning uh, of Baldwin, Moton, and Audre Lorde. Mm-hmm. And then Lorde is quoted without attribution hundred, mm-hmm. hundreds of years ago in Brazil. <laughs> right. um, and then we also open this the first part, which takes place 400 years ago in Brazil, mm-hmm. first with a contemporary newspaper clipping from, from the favelas in Brazil. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I was when I was thinking about this idea of you framing it from... Um, modernism to modernity, and you mentioned this, that, that also is a framing around the rise of the Enlightenment, mm-hmm. uh, which introduces the idea of, of progress and progressive history. Mm-hmm. And you, you've called yourself, you've called this book yourself anti-teleological. So mm-hmm. I was hoping maybe you could unpack that a little bit, the way time is functioning and the way um, this book is engaging with that notion of, of us improving our civilization as we move forward in time. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, on the one hand, I mean, I think it's fair to say, as uh, someone like Steven Pinker has articulated, that, you know, in general, uh, the world is, I mean, we have a lot of violence, we have a lot of wars, in the U.S. being at the center of a number of them or involved in a number of them, right? Uh, I mean, I'm always kind of amazed when people say, oh, you know, one of the great things is we don't have any war, or, you know, we're not in a, in a war now. And I'm like, what are you talking about? You know, we're involved in all these wars. Come on, people, wake up. But... Um, but in general, you know, and I, you know, Pinker says that, you know, societies are less violent now than they were. And so I don't know if we call that progress, but I think there's sort of a shift in human behavior and consciousness uh, from, let's say, 500 or 1,000 years ago, even though the antecedents for who we are today, you know, exist then. And we could see you know, versions of ourselves, versions of ourselves and people of the past. Um, but I did not want to write a straightly, a, a sort of straight linear uh, set of stories. I wanted to play with the, the idea of time and the question of timeliness and being out of time, in time and out of time. Um, I think um, 
again, it, I see it as relating to uh, blackness and how blackness is produced and performed, how it's constructed, how it's lived and embodied. Um, and for example, with that Brazil story, one of the fascinating things to me is, uh, you know, Brazil's sort of official model, official uh, uh, motto is, you know, um, order and progress. And the kind of unofficial statement about itself is it's the country of the future, right? And you think about, I guess, if the U.S. were, you know, going to define itself as the country of now, right? <laughs> you know, was it make America great again or whatever? Um, well, we, so I guess we were great at some point. We were the, the, you know, the the uh, yeah the country of of today. But at the same time, we see how you know in both societies uh, in Brazil uh, and in, in the United States. We have these carryovers from what really isn't such a distant past um, that we really haven't fully reckoned with. So in, in the sense that the stories try to figure out ways to both activate that past and connect it to the present, I mean, I think they're doing something that is in a, in a certain way anti-teleological, right? Because many of them end on a point of openness. Uh, many of the, a number of them actually, even in with ellipses, right? Uh, we don't know what's going to happen. We have to try to figure out where the story might take us in the future. You know, you're in a basket floating off over the Confederate lines, although we know from the, the sort of circular nature of that story, and a number of these stories are circular, we know from the circular nature of that story that, in fact, he's able to tell the story in the future. So he must have figured out, Theodore, in uh, <laughs> The Aeronauts, he must have figured out what to do uh, about being in that basket. And, and everything in the story sort of leads us to believe that. Uh, the same is true with, the, with Jim's story. Uh, the same is true with, for example, the story you mentioned on Brazil. So I, I, I was sort of fascinated fascinated by man, what happens if we think about uh, time and history uh, in a different kind of way than we usually do, which isn't to say other people haven't done similar things before, but I was kind of interested in, in trying some of those approaches out in this book. Yeah, I, I would love to talk about also the way we've talked a little bit about sort of centering and reclaiming uh, counter narratives of individuals, but you also foreground through the choices you make. You foreground things that are erased, uh, historical things that are erased, such as by placing a story of slavery in Massachusetts. Mm -hmm. The idea that slavery existed in some places all the way up until the Civil War in the North. Mm -hmm. uh, that the first settler of Manhattan was a black settler, mm -hmm. um, and things that are implied but not explicit, like the battle between the Dutch and the Portuguese for Brazil and how that's going to affect immigration. So the way the Jews are going to get pushed to the North, to North America because exactly. of, because of the Portuguese win rather than the Dutch. Right. Um, but I wanted to talk about specifically about erasure and the civil war. Mm -hmm. um, I had, I don't know if you've read cannibal by Sophia Sinclair, but I have, you have. Yes, yeah. Yes. So she, she was on and, and that's very, that book is very informed about living in Charlottesville. Um, where I lived as, as well. <laughs> as a woman of color. Mm -hmm. um, and she was here just after the alt-right march, um, defending the the statues that are everywhere commemorating the, the people who fought against the United States, mm -hmm. explicitly um, to defend slavery. Right. Um, that's weird enough to imagine that, to know that we have all these commemorations of, of, of essentially traitors mm -hmm. to, to the Union. Uh, in the defense of slavery, but it's but the, also the erasure of the fact that we don't have 
where are these commemorations of like the black heroes or um, of the slaves who have died, like the absent commemorations of mm -hmm. all the things in, in the North or the South. And you've mentioned that counter narratives came out around the 150th anniversary of the Civil War um, and that you noticed a conspicuous absence of a commemoration of the anniversary. Mm -hmm. So I was wanting you to just unpack that a little bit for us around that juxtaposition, your book coming out, no commemoration for the Civil War. It's like the North won the war and the South won the narrative or something. So talk, talk to us a little bit about that thing that you noticed. Well, it was quite, a, it was actually quite, well, first of all, I think that was um, a pure coincidence that uh, the book came out in, uh, the first version, the hardcover came out in 2015, and it was the uh, actual, yeah, the, the 150th anniversary of the end of the Civil War. Uh, and, the, I mean, really, I think, interesting to me is that throughout that year, there could have been... Uh, any number of commemorations, because, of course, after the actual, uh, you know, uh, surrender, Confederate con surrender at Appomattox Courthouse, um, th that there were a number of other battles that went on that kept, that happened, although the war was sort of officially over. But at any of those moments, you know, uh, I felt like President Obama and the Congress and, you know, uh, any number of governors uh, could have commemorated uh the end of this war, which is you know, was the, the, the really the most uh, violent and terrible uh, and destructive war on U.S. soil that ever happened. I mean, it sort of dwarfs, you know, uh, other wars that, that, that happened on U.S. soil. Um, and I think the absence of commemoration, the absence of discussion, I mean, the New York Times did an amazing series called, uh, I think, um, Disunion, uh, which was uh, remarkable. And I, I, I don't know if it's still online, but I, I would direct people to it. And I hope they do a book because it was, you know, it was uh, famous historians, amateur historians, but these beautiful short pieces that were extraordinarily illuminating with maps and uh, all kinds of documentation, uh, things pulled from the archive and beautifully interpreted. And then, of course, everyone could comment. And, uh, you know, anyone who was, you know, logging into, able to log into the Times could, could comment. And, of course, there were people who would say things like, oh, this is, you know, uh, a wonderful, um, uh, insightful, you know, um, discussion of X. You know, you know other, and other people would say, no, you know, this war was just fought about for states' rights. You'd get that over and over and over again, okay? And so even when they, you know, had the actual you know, quotations from Jefferson Davis, the president of the Confederacy, and Alexander Stevens, you know, who gave the famous cornerstone speech that said, basically, you know, this uh, Confederacy is built on, you know, the subjugation of the, of the black person, um, black people, and the maintenance of slavery. You, know, you still have people saying, well, this is about states' rights. You know, this is about, you know, uh, basically, you know, saying no to the federal government. But so, so I, I felt like there was something very resonant in a beautiful way about the book appearing at that particular moment. I think that it suggests again and again and again, this open, the, the text uh, as a whole and in its individual parts, individual stories, suggests this open wound that we have never, ever fully um, healed or even really attended to. Uh, and I, I, you know, I think that that Charlottesville demonstration was like um, a kind of toxin in the blood that sort of bursts forth, 
right? Uh, because it was not just about the defense of Robert E. Lee, whose whole life and uh, persona has been really sort of sanitized, but it was about a desire openly, no longer, you know, covertly, although it's appeared in, in you know, sort of numerous moments in American history in open form, openly to embody white supremacy, right? To say, here we are, these young, mostly young white men, marching at a campus, right? And I think it's also very significant that they picked an American university, a state university, the state university of the Old Dominion, right? Where the, you know, the state where the Confederacy's uh, main capital was. Um, to sort of, to, to be physically there, to be visually present, right? To have this uh, almost a, a kind of ritual uh, demonstration of a certain kind of power that is not willing to let go, right? To say, you know, you, you, no, no matter what you do, we are not going to relate, uh, sort of relinquish power without a fight. I, I think that's very telling. In terms of monuments, you know, uh, what has struck me, and I, I think there's a book out about it now, but I know the writer Tisa Bryant, who's a friend of mine, has, has also been writing about this a lot. She talks about how all throughout the Americas, there are commemorations of the end of slavery. Uh, there are holidays. I mean, Brazil has a holiday. Uh, and, of course, a day of national black consciousness. The United States has Juneteenth, uh, which is not an official holiday. And there are no... No, I mean, maybe there are now, of course, with the Museum of African American History, the National Museum of African American History, which is an extraordinary museum. Uh, you know, there are there are some commemorations, but there's like, you know, it's sort of amazing to me uh, on one level and then not that in the North and South and all of the former slave states from well, what's Maine all the way west to, uh, I guess, you know, Missouri, there are no statues uh, honoring the ins former enslaved people. And even things like renaming have been very contentious and fraught. So I'll just give you one last story. Just yesterday, I believe, there was an amazing story in the St. Louis Post-Dispatch about a person named Archer Alexander. He was uh, an enslaved man who lived in St. Charles, Missouri, which is the county just north of uh, St. Louis County. Archer Alexander, uh, he was born in Virginia. He was brought as a young person, as an enslaved person, to Missouri. He worked on this farm. He wanted to be free. He walked, I believe, five miles. He had heard that there was that the Confederates were going to, or the Confederate-leaning uh, uh, Missourians were going to destroy this bridge that the Union had to cross over. So I believe he walked five miles, warned the Union troops. They were secretly, they were able to repair the bridge so that they would, they could get across it. So he had to flee. He fled to St. Louis. He, when he got to St. Louis, he was put in contact with William Greenleaf Elliott, the grandfather of T.S. Elliott, and the founder of Washington University. Elliott sheltered him. Pro-Confederate uh, people came and beat him, violently beat him, and dragged him out of Elliott's house. Okay, but no, Elliott was one of the most prominent, William Greenleaf Elliott, Unitarian anti-slavery one of the most prominent St. Louisans. So he basically did everything he could to ensure that Archer Alexander could get out of um, prison. So finally he was able to win his freedom and, you know, at the very end of the war. 
He took a picture of Archer Alexander, right? He was one of the first taking all these pictures of former enslaved people and uh, sent the picture to Washington. This picture was used in a very famous statue of Abraham Lincoln, you know, basically freeing an enslaved person. Now, Archer Alexander did ne was never able to get to Washington to see his face, which is on this statue. And I don't think William Greenleaf Elliott was either. Mm -hmm. But it's sort of amazing, like all of that history is encoded in that face, in that statue, and no one really knew about this. And now the debate is, can we name a creek after Orange Alexander when there should be a statue, you know, in downtown St. Louis? But I mean, I think this is, see, that's sort of emblematic of how things have worked in the United States. And it's just, it's, you know, so I think, feel like, you know, my, my, you know, my work is sort of in, com or particularly counter narratives, is in conversation with that, you know, all those things embedded in that one story, which on one, the one hand is a remarkable story. And on the other hand is a very, very, I think, paradigmatic story of how American history uh, has worked. The, the way you talk about that story and, and more generally about the lack of commem commemoration now, it sort of confirms the feeling that I have as I read counter narratives that you're working through contemporary issues, mm -hmm. but not in a contemporary setting. And I would be interested to unpack that a little bit, particularly for writers who are listening. Because when, I, when you were talking about writing annotations, you said that you originally wanted to write a traditional book mm -hmm. that confronted the AIDS crisis but that as a young writer, you couldn't find a way to tackle it as right. a project. That when you were older, you experienced that um, you were better able to incorporate things into a work, but you also realized that um, you don't have to write about things directly. Mm -hmm. um, so you do write uh, about politics directly in your blog, J mm -hmm. Jay's Theater, whether it's about racism in the conceptual art world or about specifically about Trump. And none of that is... is in counter narratives, but it feels like it's in counter narratives, strangely. Mm -hmm. So I was hoping maybe you could give some examples, if any come to mind, in counter narratives of strategies you use to confront your contemporary concerns, but couching them in a different story altogether. That's a great question. Well, to give one immediate example. So when I wrote the story on Brazil or Denouement, uh, I was uh, deeply troubled by uh, the George W. Bush administration. I again. I mean, I'm all. I have to say, I don't know why I, I am amazed by the American capacity to just you know push things down a rabbit hole, <laughs> so that we don't you know we completely forget them and they create a completely new narrative. It's like, oh, this was great, you know. So now George Bush, George W. Bush, is this you know benign uh, painting kind of lovable character, and I think I saw what was it over fifty percent of you know uh, Democrats you know think he's he's just terrific. I mean, and this was you know, I, it's almost impossible to put into words how horrible those eight years of his tenure were. I mean, things are crazy now, but that was I mean it was just abominable. Okay, so at I think. There was a certain moment, maybe 2002, and one way that I dealt with my desire to address the Iraq war and the horrors of the Bush administration was through this emotional outreach project that I'm going to talk about uh, at uh, Portland State today. The other way was to try and write about it, but I kept shutting down because I think in part also to the aftermath of 9-11 uh, uh, left me, like I think clearly 
you know, millions of people, most, most Americans with a certain, you know, kind of a profound uh, trauma uh, at, at what we'd witnessed. And, and then, of course, the sort of strange kind of non-investigation of it, et cetera. So when um, Tisa Bryant uh, was, uh, she and her uh, co-editors were putting together the journal Encyclopedia, uh, she gave me two words, Brazil and denouement. And it turned out, I think that we were really only supposed to use one word, but I went with two. And I think she also told me that Samuel Delaney, of all people, was the other, only other person who chose both words. But, but I mean, in that story, the family narrative in part, I realized afterwards, is a narrative about the Bushes, hmm. right? You know, and and the, the character of the colonel is really in certain ways a kind of embodiment of what I saw. I mean, sort of Bush's ascent and to, to power and, you know, all the outrage people felt. You know, how can this person who really doesn't seem qualified, how can they, you know, this person be, you know, advances to the presidency and, you know, he becomes president even though he loses the popular vote. I mean, well, yeah, we, we've, we've, we've been here before. But, but you know, and the violence that, that, that seemed to be unleashed. All these things I realized I was working through in that story, even as I was also working through thinking about the very the, the actual content of that story and thinking about Brazil and its relation to the United States and thinking about kind of, you know, slavery and its aftermath and thinking about the effects of the past on the present, you know, um, the, the fact that, you know, it's that, that Quilombo, that maroon uh, co- uh, uh, little colony that's destroyed and the people are dispersed. I mean, what happens when you just, you know, you enact violence and disperse and displace people, you know, and then and, and then make it very difficult for their descendants ever to, you know, kind of uh, fully reintegrate. Well, of course, you know, that sometimes you, there's a kind of karmic payback uh, that happens. So that's so but all those things are, are sort of in play. But it also is very much the the mood of that story is drawn from that particular moment in time. And I didn't realize it at first, but now that I look at it, it's just so clear. And I think that, you know, uh, it, it also impressed upon me, you know, uh, that, that I've taught this uh, uh, essay a number of times, you know, uh, uh, Roland Barthes, The Death of the Author, right? uh, you know, where he talks about the power of discourse. And you come to see that, I mean, I think uh, clearly if you're reading something, you know, you're not going to be, most people aren't going to be reading it uh, in a literary critical in a sort of deep literary critical way. But I mean, I think that, you know, one of the things that becomes clear, uh, clearer and clearer the older I get is, you know, every work is, you know, no matter what it looks like, is very much a product of its time. And that that means that all of the various discourses that exist at that particular moment are in some ways shaping that work, even if the author isn't fully aware of it. So I think that, you know, that's just, that's just I think, one uh, immediate example of how the politics, the political mood, and my desire to um, create a, an artwork that was sort of resistant to that moment l- turned out to look like something that doesn't seem at all to be related, but very much is. In case you just tuned in, we're talking today to writer John Keane about his latest work, Counter Narratives. So in the blog, Jay's Theater, where you do more of a headlong direct confrontation into the politics of the day. Mm -hmm. Uh, You quote 
uh, you, you use this, you quote the same quote from the journalist John Suskind from the 2004 election that mm-hmm. Elliot Weinberger used in one of his books also, and which I discussed with him. And I'd be interested in discussing it with you because you mentioned one of the things about the Bush era was him creating this whole uh, new reality and this whole new narrative. Mm-hmm. So the presidential aide to George Bush at the time shared with the journalist Suskind that guys like him and by proxy us were in what we call the reality-based community, which he defined as people who believe that solutions emerge from your judicious study of discernible reality. That's not the way the world really works anymore, he continued. We're an empire now, and when we act, we create our own reality. And while you're studying that reality, judiciously as you will, we'll act again, creating other new realities, which you can study too. And that's how things will start out. We're history's actors, and you, all of you, will be left to just study what we do. This, this reminded me of a, of a voice in, in your last story, Lions, the only story that doesn't take place in America. Um, and it's sort of, a, as you mentioned, a counterpoint. Um, I'm just going to read this one quote. If I wanted your entire ancestral village to lie prone before me as I entered them one by one, if I wanted to raise the entire village and rape all the crushed and dismembered and burnt bodies, if I wanted to destroy every vestige of every single soul that spoke the same language as you and rape their ghosts, rape their ancestors who were my ancestors, if I want to rape the vestigial mothers and fathers of us all, if I wanted to rape the last embers of your existence and memory, and then what wasn't even left after that, I would have done so. I can write the story of reality however I see fit at any time. And obviously these aren't the same. One's a white American Republican espousing a philosophy coming full bloom, and another is a black African despotic leader. Mm-hmm. But the, they're both asserting not that power trumps the truth, but rather that power creates the truth. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was just curious about your thoughts about that phenomenon, and maybe more specifically about writing or strategies of writing when you're living in that in the miasm of that post-factual phenomenon. Right. Well, on the one hand, it's, you know, I think of it as, uh, you know, coming straight out of someone like Plato, you know, and his his Republic and uh, his discussion of, you know, uh, the leader, the tyrant, the ruler, and the the power of creating reality. And of course, also Nietzsche, you know, you can see this again and again, the idea of the ubermensch, the, the sort of the really sort of powerful figure who really is kind of beyond are uh, uh, operating sort of beyond human constraints and also, you know, has sort of rejected God and bec- become a kind of God, right? And, and you know, Nietzsche's idea that <clears throat> there sometimes is a reason to do this. I mean, I'm, I don't, I disagree with it, but... Uh, but yeah, I see that you know being a long strain in a Western uh, culture uh, that sort of feeds into these ideas. I also, I think, am quite aware that you know we had—I th- believe we had our first postmodern at the moment. I, people don't really talk about this, but uh, you know, at the moment when postmodernism was really kind of uh, uh, blazing uh, in. Uh, sort of literary and artistic culture, late 70s and 80s, we got our first postmodern president, uh, uh, Ronald Reagan. And uh, I don't think we've ever recovered. You know, it's like we keep getting more and more extreme examples every so often. You know, we have a correction and then we get, you know, the the next version. Uh, And now, of course, we have the kind of the ultimate postmodern nihilist uh, in office. I think it's a challenge for writers. Uh, I think it's a challenge. Uh, you know, 
because on the one hand, one of the things that writers, uh, fiction writers particularly, but, but poets as well, uh, need to have in uh, their uh, toolkit is irony. But when you have people who uh, are sort of so kind of off the charts that they uh, almost render irony, uh, I don't want to say irrelevant, but they, they basically almost drain it of all of its power. I mean, what do you do? Right. I mean, how do you capture uh, a person who for, for I'm thinking about our current moment? How do you capture a person who is uh, on, on a certain level? I mean, I was listening to this interesting uh, conversation this morning on the radio about, you know, the whole gun control debate, which we have, you know, not even it's not even every, you know, 10 years. It's like every three, two years or three years or something. You know, so we have these horrific mass slaughters that would in most societies would make. You know, people act, make our representatives act. They would they would do the, the same thing and they would look at, you know, the Second Amendment and read it carefully and think about, OK, well, you know, we need to keep our society safe. We need to keep our children safe. We need to keep our people safe. We've got to change the laws. OK, so this is how most places have operated, right, and would and have operated. You know, but here it's like, you know, we get someone saying on the one hand, well, you know, uh, uh, we're not going to do anything. Then we hear, oh, you know, we should just be able to take people's guns away. And then today it's like, well, no, I didn't really mean that. I meant, you know, or he, he didn't mean that. I mean, it's just so crazy. It's like there is no, you can't even ironize that, right, because it's almost beyond irony. So I think it's a, you know, uh, it poses a real challenge. Um, I also think that, for example, with postmodernism, I understand the motivations for it. And I, of course, like everyone who, you know, came along of a certain era, am a product of it. I also think, though, that we might want to kind of rethink and this is happening, but I think it, you know, the, the, what tends up happening is that it goes, you know, people shift far to the right and we have all this, you know, anti, you know, um, you know, identitarian uh, discourse. And, you know, I mean, of course, everyone is identitarian in some way, form or fashion. We might want to just kind of think through a bit more. And I think people are doing this, but, you know, maybe do it publicly. What the effects of the kind of postmodern shift and turn have been because at a certain level it can be it, I, I think we're seeing it's radically destabilizing if we can't even agree on what objective truth is and you have people actively militating against any notion of object, objectivity right so even if we kind of put it in quotations or are careful about what we say to be objectively true we we might say that I mean there is something to be said for verifiable verifiable facts. Not that that's the only understanding of truth, but I mean when you know, I think we need to have a public dis- like a, a public real public discussion of this, and we need people who are very smart. Uh, we need people who who understand these uh, you know uh, the, the these issues and people who but also who can who can sort of speak with everyone right who are not just talking to other academics but can speak to a wider uh, you know public because I think you know. It, it's it's really beginning to take us to a very dangerous place um, that uh, we, we don't want to go past the point of no return. I don't think we're there. But I think, you know, writers and artists have to be part of that conversation and have to be – it really should be trying to figure out ways to uh, 
to get people thinking. And I, th- I think there are many, many, many people are, many writers and artists are doing that, which is an b- amazing thing. But we need to make sure that, you know, it's as visible as possible to as many people as possible. Well, I wanted to um, ask you a question that I think is actually a bad question because it it sets up a false binary. But so There I'm, are no bad questions. <laughs> I think it's bad nonetheless. But I'm going to ask it because I'm hoping it'll it'll be productive or produce some interesting conversation. So... The last story that I just read that piece from, the contemporary African story, Mm -hmm. um, I wondered about that African despot when I think about leaders such as Robert Mugabe or Jacob Zuma or Charles Taylor, and Mm -hmm. and some of which are espousing overtly anti-colonial revolutionary rhetoric Mm -hmm. and yet are seen as as deeply corrupt Mm -hmm. leaders. Um, I wondered if you saw them as, and this despot in, in Lyons as, and their failures as part of the legacy of colonialism. Oh, yeah. Or as a gesture like Yagyasi does in Homegoing, of where she looks at like the, the way Africans participated in the slave trade mm-hmm. at the beginning, like a, a way of complicating the narrative of, of um, who's on what side, essentially. Right. I, I see them as, um, uh, well, in, 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 in I think both cases are uh are uh important so yes i mean and they i think the both of the figures actually talk about being anti-colonialist and in fact it, you know i was i was spurred in part by robert mugabe in particular in fact there there's i play with them you know one of his speeches in there that that really sort of powerful anti-colonial speech that the one of the despots gives one of the dictators gives you know, to basically say, you know, I am the person who's going to defend uh, this country. Uh, at the same time, right, it, we see that, uh, right, th- there is a, a tradition that parallels colonialism and actually help, you know, enable it where, you know, certain leaders are able to benefit from, you know, uh, you know helping to enslave their own people, uh, helping to, you know, the colonizers to, to, you know, gain land and power, and they get something in return. So I think it's, it's, you know, that, that duality, I think, is, is active. Um, but, but, but part of what it, what, what's also key here is this sen- profound sense of betrayal. It's like, you know, you, you know, we fought to be free, but you really, what, what you also really wanted was what you really wanted was not for all of us to be free, but it was for yourself to gain as much money and power as you wanted, right? Right to become a kind of you know sort of super potentate, and what what's now happened is you're going to pay the ultimate price, right? So yeah, but I but but I think that you know the, 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 both the anti-colonial and sort of this parallel tradition are uh, in play in that story. Huh. Interesting. Yeah. I'd like to pivot to some of your other works. Sure. Uh, I sort of see them all as counter narratives or dealing with counter narratives. I don't know if I'm I'm forcing that, but um, for instance, annotations could be considered both an annotation to and a counter narrative to your unwritten traditional memoir. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's also a counter narrative to the official history of St. Louis mm-hmm. in a sense. Uh, but you're more in your more you've said about your more recent work that you feel like it's covering many of the same concerns as counter narratives, but in a different way. Mm-hmm. And I would love to hear about the connective tissue you see between counter narratives and say, play land and grind. Like mm-hmm. what what um, what through lines are there for you? Mm-hmm. Even though I mean these we'll get to those pieces a, a, a little more specifically, but they're radically different projects mm-hmm. than counter narratives on one level. 
Yeah, I mean, I try not. I mean, I think it's sometimes important as for me as an author, not to uh, an artist, not to think so carefully about, uh, you know, how everything fits together. Uh, and uh, because it, I, f- I feel like that starts to become, you know, lead you towards thinking about which some people do and, and not to criticize them. But that's not so much my interest uh, about a career. And, you know, that 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 there is this kind of um through line or holism that uh, that I can apply to everything I do, but yeah, I think there is a kind of uh, a kind of a kind of counter movement often in my work, uh, even though it takes different uh, sort of appears in different genres and takes different forms. That is a um, a kind of a recurrent uh, component of it. So I, I would I would say, for example, with I mean, Playland really is a collection of old and new poems. I mean, many years ago, I had, uh, it seemed like I was going to have a collection of, before Seismosis came out, a collection of poems appear, uh, and uh, it never happened. I mean, I hope it does happen at some point, um, because I have a lot of poems. Uh, But, so, so that's a kind of collection of old and new poems, and yeah, some of the poems are are more traditional in form. Some of them are more experimental, uh, but they I think I felt like they told a kind of story uh, in concert with each other. So I think it works as a little collection. I mean, with Grind, that was a, just a terrific little project that uh, I was able to work on with Nicholas Milner after uh, a summer at um, Image Text Ithaca uh, with um, Nicholas and Catherine, Catherine Taylor, who just created an amazing uh, MFA program there. And um, and it was that that's really sort of conceptual writing because it's language that's culled from uh, the Grinder app. Uh, and I was just amazed and sort of fa- just fascinated and amazed that on the one hand, how uh, how revealing the language could be and also how vulnerable it could be, uh, you know, how banal it could be, but also at a certain level, how assertive, you know, people seem to, to, to think it was to, to say certain things. And so putting it together, I realized, I mean, this like so many things out there, you know, you, you have poetry here, depending on how you sort of read it and arrange it. And Nick, Nicholas had uh, these w- amazing photographs. Uh, and he actually has done a, a much bigger book that it doesn't, it has some, some text in it. But um, he had these amazing photographs, and we realized they kind of worked together because the, the photographs are doing something very simpler, similar to the text. So we came up with that. But yeah, it is a kind of counter-narrative of, like, I don't know, those apps that are out yeah. there that, you know, everyone is using and ranting about and everything else. Um, well, one of the things that was interesting specifically to Grind, well, maybe first you could just tell people who don't know what the Grind app is, what it is. It's Grinder, right? So it's like many of these apps, like a, it's a, it's a kind of gay Tinder. Uh, I mean, uh, there, there are a number of these apps, but Grinder is, what, what I, may, I don't know if it's still a big one, but it was one of the, the big ones or has been a big one. And uh, it's a gay dating app and uh, or, or friendship app or sex app or, you know, what, what, depending on who's using it, um, where people just post their profiles and... Uh, you know the the profiles have you know people will describe themselves they have often this to me fascinatingly absurd uh language in them i mean you could but and of course you know even before i would say this even before the apps you know there have always been sites like this there's sites on the internet where you know people are looking for i mean you know 
you see this on maybe not so much on Facebook, but I think about like for example earlier sites that uh, I used to belong to, like High Five or uh, Friendster, uh, you know, um, or even you know very neutral sites like you know Ello or um, what was it? It was another one uh, that was supposed to be kind of anti you know uh, establishment. Um, but anyway, so you know people put these sort of uh, little statements about themselves and what they're looking for, you know. Um, and and sometimes they're, you know, really quite interesting, witty, but sometimes they're just absolutely absurd. And so I realized, you know, if you start to cull a lot of these collect, I mean, it's like if you were going through Twitter or something, you know, you, you can get you get a lot of really fascinating things uh, that people are saying about themselves. And you put them all together and you have a completely new something new. So that's basically what I was doing. And I, yeah. I do that a lot. I, I, I will go through the internet. Uh, I've been doing this for, for, for quite some time now uh, and just collecting little snippets of language and stuff. And, you know, at some point, maybe I'll use it. At some point, I, I won't. But, um, you know, with Grind, it actually just worked out that we were both, we both had kind of done something very similar uh, with uh, it using different media. And when we put it together, we had a little book. Well, one of the ways it feels like it's it deals with counter identities is literally all of the faces are uh, erased. They're right. they're Pixelated blurred. out. Or yeah, or erased out. or blurred or smeared. So right. we don't see the faces in the photos. Right. And the words sort of serve as this other face mm-hmm. for the person. But they off, there's also often the paradox that some of the words are often like, please have a face or I do have a face pic. Mm-hmm. So we have like the presentation in the image of the how the person wants to be seen without their face and then we have the words right which are, are another counter narrative to that to the image in a way like please have a face i i do have a face pic right even though my face isn't here right well the, the, i mean the, the the interesting thing too is that you know uh the many of those images uh, that Nicholas pulled up i mean it's fascinating because they're so revealing in certain ways like people will have their you know Behinds and their asses in the air, or something, you know, or they'll be like, you know, spread out nude on a bed. So they're giving, and you can see what's in the room and everything like that. But their face is pixelated out, and I think it's what what I found fascinating about a lot of this language is, it's both concealing and revealing, right? Uh, it's saying very much about in in very few words about who that person is, but you still don't know who that person is, right? So you you know. It, it's it. None of this is akin to actually meeting and talking to someone in person, and you know, actually interacting with them. But this is, I, it's sort of fascinating because this is where we, we're 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 kind of moving towards, right? You know, the this kind of virtual uh, uh, world, uh, the world of virtual relationships uh, of all kinds. You know, I mean, I think about how uh, I was just reading, um, you know. Young people posting uh, images of themselves on, I think, a Snapchat with these filters that allow you to, you know, uh, uh, basically um, Photoshop your face or, you know, change your face, your features and stuff like that. And so you have all these uh, sort of young people now thinking, okay, well, I've got to, I want to look more like the picture. I want to look like someone else's picture, you know, because I want to be like that, not, you know, I want to be like that person. So I want to, I have to get a nose job or, you know, because the, the photograph shows my nose to be too big, I have to get my nose. I mean, so it's like, but, you know, there's no real conversation going on between, it's like, yeah, I'm looking at this and I'm, you know, developing a kind of sense of self based on virtuality, which I just find really fascinating. (laughs) But I mean, I guess it's happened in different ways uh, in the past, but I think we're in a, in a, in a new moment. Um, Yeah. You know, and, uh, and so I I think some of that is captured in that book. Well, I would love people to hear a a couple of poems. 
it feels like Playland in, in a way is a hinge between counter narratives and grind. It likes when I think of like the romantic encounter in counter narratives between Langston Hughes and Javier via Viorutia. 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 Thank you. And, um, and then the anonymous in, encounters in, in Grind. You have this poem. You have this poem that feels like a hinge. Um, try to remember that South African man. Mm-hmm. And I would love if you, if you don't mind reading that, and maybe also uh, Suit, which also feels like a, a different, a different in, in interrogation of identity. Sure. Okay. So this is called Try to Remember That South African Man. Sometimes I try to remember the name of that South African man who insisted on being called colored, even though in this country he would have qualified as black. He was more attached to that identification than any other, such as older, dapper, tourist, uncut, speaks Afrikaans, wears glasses. His hair slept under my fingers like lamb's wool. He could tongue longer than any guy I'd come across thus far. What did we talk about as we lay on the comforter in his hotel room, getting around Boston on foot, how we'd both considered studying architecture, apartheid over there, racism here, especially how black Americans had achieved so much in comparison, how it seemed to take everything for granted, back and forth. Imagine if just bitching about inadequate schools and lack of housing could land you at the bottom of a ditch, he asked me. But it happens here, too, I protested. He smiled. Respect your elders, even if they're lovers. Be quiet now. And then his palm covered my mouth and nose, leaving only a tiny slit for me to breathe. This is how they held me before they began to beat me, he said. Then he rained down another round of kisses. And this uh, poem is called Suit. And I'll just mention, uh, it's for Phil Horvitz, who I worked with. He was a uh, like a wonderful uh, work companion, who's hilarious and, and brilliant. And it also refers to his uh, a, a set of performances uh, by his uh, former boyfriend, uh, Nalan Blake, uh, who would dress up in a, a bunny suit and dance and dance and dance. <clears throat> suit. If sorrow is a suit, its weight is incalculable. One day he's gone and you put it on. One day he's gone and it sews itself inside you. Morning drapes your skin in its invisible fabric. Every memory furs atop a prior memory. Your limbs, your features, your senses extend themselves to accommodate the sadness. One morning you wake and try to wear this new suit in the bathroom or the bedroom, in the shower or at the front door, down the stairs of the stoop to the walkway hovering before you, and you finally realize you are carrying another body, his body, your former body, your bodies together, in and on you, and this slows you and stills you, weighs more than two bodies or many bodies inside your body. It's like the bodies are breeding bodies, metastasizing bodies. So much bone and vein and hair, and you touch the force, the heat of the seething arteries, fear the sh- feel the sheer new tonnage moving and pressing in on you, grief sent like the first breath in a foreign country, and you fear your entry, but you're already in. You think of flight, but woe offers no exit. 
You sing, you weep, you dance, but there's no way out except one through your own skin. This one, heavy with sweat, matted, half shed and broken by a delta of scars, smelling of something familiar, indiscernible and animal, slick and smoldering like volcanic rock, as white as ash and death itself. Take it. You take it. You take it off. We've been listening to John Keane read poems from his collection, Playland. I was hoping maybe you'd read one from Grind just so people can hear how tonally different and totally different the um, f- crafted found language sounds. Okay. Well, I should say that this is actually a, a, a um, one long complete poem. Uh, so I'll read a few excerpts. And the thing I should say about uh, Grind is it's written in um, two columns. Uh, so you can read it both, uh, you know, straight down each column or across or zigzag uh, set up so that you can read it in those multiple ways. So I'll just read a few little sections. What are you really looking for? A little banter? Some company? I'm bored with quality, being me. I can, I can be friendly. I don't discriminate. I just don't cling to certain personalities. Whatever you like, massage, music, stretching, wrestling friends, I want to meet to hook up. The measure of a man, what you do with power, or the absence of it. Please have a face, picture, for chatting. Your muscles mean nothing. Travel for work, crisscrossing the country. If this sounds like you, hit me up. No agenda, along for the ride. Crank it up, looking to get hot and steamy. Does anyone go on dates these days? Exploring possibilities. I like bears or the idea of bears. I appreciate those who read, buy, discreet guys, open profiles, love to laugh and laugh to love. And here's another version. What are you? A little banter? I'm bored being me. I don't discriminate. Really looking for some company with quality. I can be friendly. I just don't cling to certain personalities. Whatever you like. I want to meet the measure of a man or the absence of it. Picture, massage, music stretching, wrestling friends to hook up. What you do with power? Please have a face for chatting. Your muscles travel for work. If this sounds like no agenda, crank it up. Meaning nothing, crisscrossing the country. You hit me up along for the ride, looking to get hot and steamy. Does anyone go exploring possibilities? I appreciate those bi open profiles. On dates these days, I like bears or the idea of bears who read. Discreet guys love to laugh and laugh to love. We've been listening to John Keane read from Grind. I love that. Um, I love bears and the idea of bears. <laughs> That's really good. Um, uh, so you've you've taught a class on the Black Literary Avant Garde, uh, Temples for the Future, Twentieth and Twenty First Century, mm-hmm. and um, you've talked about how you feel like the uh, aims are different between the Avant Garde and the Black Avant Garde. Mm-hmm. Can you can you speak a little bit to to that for us today? Well, sure. Well, first of all, let me just say there was an amazing uh, uh, conference. I didn't go to it, but I did uh, read the, the sort of transcript of it. It appeared in Tripwire, organized uh, by Giovanni Singleton and Renee Gladman in the early 2000s. Uh, and it was on the Black Avant-Garde. And uh, just a really, um, just it's just beautiful, beautiful, uh, you know, um, uh, essays, uh, 
poems, uh, some fiction by people like, of course, Renee and Giovanni and Nathaniel Mackey and Wanda Coleman and Lorenzo Thomas, uh, Harriet Mullen, et cetera. So really, really, uh, Mark McMorris, really just terrific people. Um, I, I feel like uh, for the black avant-garde, uh, the sort of aims of the avant-garde are always there, but the there's a, another kind of project which is really uh, centered on uh, you know f- freedom and resistance, and you see this again and again and again in the work of what we might call the black avant-garde. On, but you know, I would say sort of alongside this, and I should also mention that there was um, another uh, beautiful. Uh, like um, I think you can even find this online, um, a transcript. There's a transcript of a conversation. It was an uh, internet conversation, um, email conversation that uh, Evie Shockley and I believe Terrence Hayes did for Jubilat. That also a more recent one uh, uh, conversation about the Black Open Guard. And this, that was also I think in the mid 2000s. Um, this 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 idea of uh, a particular ideas about freedom, liberation, equality. Uh, Sort of challenging the status quo, challenging respectability, uh, to sort of rethink possibilities for uh, expression and selfhood, being are central to the black avant-garde. Um, and again and again and again, we see, uh, you know, that there's a kind of overtly. Well, the avant-garde has in, sort of woven into it. Uh, I think Linda, Linda Noakland suggests um, when she's talking about sort of the origins of the French avant-garde, like a political component. But then, you know, she mentions how, for example, with uh, David, there is this this overt, uh, you know, political project. And then by the time we get to Manet, right, you know, the the, the politics uh, have sort of been evacuated, but the kind of sending up of the bourgeoisie, this joke of the blague, I think she uses is the term B L A G U E uh, is you know sort of takes the po- the place of the politics. Um, with the black avant-garde, I think the politics are always there, um, and we th- look at, think of, of these various moments and figures, and um, and I think that's that's something we can never forget, right? You know, I mean, the black arts movement was not just about changing language and transforming the literature, but it was an overtly political, you know. Um, uh, 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 intervention uh, that's still in many ways with us, right, and yeah. still need it, right, even if even as we critique some of the components of it, you know. Well, I wanted to ask you about that in relationship to some of what you've written about racism in the con- in the white conceptual art world. Mm-hmm. Um, when I think of so, um, when I think of Kenneth Goldsmith's uh, remixing and performance of the autopsy of Michael Brown or Vanessa Place's uh, project of tweeting the the racist lines from Gone with the Wind. Mm-hmm. Um, you've written about this, mm-hmm. but unlike some other people that I've seen engage with it who've been on the show, um, like for instance, Yun Song Kim would argue that I believe that there's something inherent in the aesthetics of conceptual art and an abstraction itself. Maybe it's this evacuation of the politics mm-hmm. um, that is the problem. But it feels like in your writing on your blog that you condemn the projects wholesale, mm-hmm. but at the same time, you seem to suggest that the conceptual practice remains a valuable path mm-hmm. in, con- in the contemporary imaginative culture. So it feels like um, you're carving out a slightly different position than mm-hmm. a lot of people who, who would argue perhaps that it's rotten down to something 
at, at its core mm-hmm. rather than the, the practitioners who are, are using it in a certain way. Mm-hmm. Can, can you talk about conceptual practice um, in way, maybe in ways that you see don't do what Kenneth Goldsmith and Vanessa Place did? Um, but are that are but are of interest to you? Sure. Well, okay. Let me just say this: that I, you know, okay. So I critiqued a, a specific um, uh, projects that uh, Kenneth Goldsmith and Vanessa Place engaged in. Uh, at the same time, you know, I actually uh, do think there is something valuable. For example, in uh, some of Kenneth Goldsmith's work. Uh, that doesn't mean that I don't think he is deeply problematic uh, in a lot of ways. But I think you know. Um, so, uh, so let me just mention, you know, for example, someone like Dorothy Wong uh, in her book. She wrote this brilliant study, Thinking Its Presence. You know, and Dorothy kind of gets at this in, in multiple ways uh, when she's talking about um, Asian American poetry and the number of controversies that have attended uh, major uh, Asian American poets uh, in, that, that have also involved the white avant-garde. Um, you know, and so she, I, I'm sort of thinking of her work when I when – I, Make would make the statement that when we think about a kind of contemporary uh, some contemporary white conceptual practice, right? Part of it has allowed some of its figures to not deal with things like race, right? You know, you, 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 you know, and and we could say even some of the critics of it, you know, they they don't have to deal with. Uh, not only do they not deal with black conceptualists or you know, or conceptual writers at all, or, or writers of color at all who are doing conceptual work, but I mean, it, 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 it almost allows you to kind of sidestep history. On the other hand, I think it's important to keep in mind that if we look at conceptual practice in the United States, some of its really important figures are people of color. You know, you have people, uh, you know, it's really early on in the 50s, like Benjamin Patterson and Yoko Ono. I mean, Yoko Ono, is a, it's sort of a major person. I mean, you can't just erase, right? And you, you move into the late 60s and 70s, you have you know, someone like Adrian Piper or Charles Gaines, et cetera. So, I mean, to me, I think uh, that to, to cast conceptual practice conceptual art, conceptual writing, solely as a, a kind of white thing and a thing that does not deal with, you know, a race, gender, sexuality, et cetera, is deeply problematic because I think if you look uh, kind of into the history and you're sort of aware of how things have developed, you see that, you know, there was a lot more being done than this current moment, right, Or which doesn't mean so much current anymore, but that was current in the late 90s and early 2000s. Um, and, you know, it's almost like they've been able to kind of claim the mantle of what conceptual practice is, even though it's only this one, you know, kind of a moment in this much longer uh, and richer history. Hmm. Can, can you talk a little bit about uh, your emotional outreach exercises and the project in general? Um, I know you're going to Portland State after this to talk about it more, but do you, is this an avant-garde practice of yours? Um, would you place it in the avant-garde, in the black avant-garde? And, and what is it? Sure. Well, it's, I mean, it's very, it's deeply informed by people like uh, Adrian Piper, uh, Patterson, Alan Caprow. Uh, it is a set of, it began uh, with me creating this a set of cards uh, that I would give out for free. I mean, uh, so on the one hand, the cards, I called the cards vouchers because I was thinking of, you know, being in this very neoliberal moment uh, that's, you know, still with us and seems to be, you know, getting stronger and stronger every day. Um, but on the other hand, my idea was 
uh, that uh, the cards would be given out free, uh, that, uh, you know, my name, I, I think I had a kind of pseudonym and then my initials, but my name is not on them. Uh, I didn't even want to know. I mean, I kind of wanted to know, but didn't at another level want to know what people did with them. Uh, so I gave kind of gentle instructions. And what they were, the first version and sort of various iterations involves me coming up with a set of emotions on one side, and I called it a free emotional voucher. And then I give the cards out. And on the back, they say something along the lines of, you know, um, th this is this uh, little gift to you. And you can use this either, A, if you need this emotion, right? So if you need to feel a happiness or love or hope and you don't feel it, you can carry it with you. You can create a little ritual where you, you know, kind of draw upon the power of this card and everything it, and this emotion, what it represents. Uh, or, or you can give it to someone who you feel needs it if they need to feel hope. The Some of the other cards and more negative emotions, you know, like hate, rage, um, indifference, right, something more, a little bit more neutral, you could then uh, take that and uh, if you felt like you felt too much rage, okay, then you could come up, you could burn it, you could tear it up, uh, you could bury it, you could put it in an envelope and mail it, <laughs> I don't know, do something with it, right? Right, right. but uh, you, could, you could sort of think of, use it as a kind of um, uh, material correlative to that emotion or to or to, to to draw it out of yourself or to you know flush it yourself of it and so I was giving these out for free and I did it in a lot of different places and I've there have been various versions I created some in Spanish for when I, uh, a trip to Cuba uh, some in German and that also were German and Yiddish uh, for ex uh, two exhibits in Germany uh, or what in one exhibit in Germany um, and then uh, given, you know, some out, various versions out in New York. And then the newest versions uh, are, are what I call emotional exercises. Uh, and I'm going to talk about that today. And they are kind of like random acts of kindness, although I thought of this before, random acts of kindness. But they're not only, you know, about kind acts, because some of them are very self-directed. But again, ways to access our emotions, because, you know, we have often operate under this idea that, you know, man is a rational animal or humans are rational animals. But I mean, I think we probably the more accurate thing to say is we're sometimes rational, but we're always emotional. So. <laughs> That's a good point. Yeah. Yeah. I, we, I, I wish we had a, a ton of time to talk about uh, you as a translator. Mm -hmm. I want to at least point people to your great article at the Poetry Foundation website, Translating Poetry, Translating Blackness, mm -hmm. um, that argues that we need more translations of literary works from non-anglophone black diasporic authors into english mm -hmm. and i would um guess you probably the unspoken thing here or maybe it was spoken there is that we would it would probably be beneficial to have more black translators mm -hmm. also in the united yeah. states yeah um which feels like this feels like a um a, a way to reverse erased narratives obviously mm -hmm. too because like like daniel berzutsky says in the introduction um pe most people don't even know that there are black writers in pakistan or right. in iraq or right. there are black people in pakistan and iraq right, right. um yeah. but i was wondering maybe if um if one you could point to any um translations that are, you're particularly excited to for listeners and then also if you could touch on the idea of not just translating black writers from languages other than English into English, but the notion of blackness, mm -hmm. since it's a constructed notion. Like mm -hmm. if you're translating, I know you translate Portuguese. Mm -hmm. Like if you're translating a, a 
black experience in Brazil, there's also going to be some gap mm-hmm. between what it, what black is mm-hmm. uh, in in the or I presume there's a gap between what black is in the United States and what it is in Brazil. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, yeah, I mean, so just quickly, uh, so I'm affiliated with the African Poetry Book Fund, uh, which is based uh, at the University of Nebraska. It's an amazing group of people. And uh, I think one of the uh, translators who's doing some terrific work uh, uh, is Todd Fredson. He's going to be, I think, uh, one of his, uh, several of his books actually have come up. Uh, he, he translated the Ivorian poet, um, uh, Josue Gibbo and then Tanya Boni is another one uh, uh, whose whose work is going to be out or might actually yeah may, it'll be out very soon. Uh, there are a number of really extraordinary translators uh, from Spanish um, uh, out there. Uh, Afro-Cuban writers, uh, Kirsten, uh, Kirsten Dykstra is is one of the ones who's done some just really amazing work. I mean, there, there, there's some there's some really really great people. Antenna, I know, uh, is looking to uh, publish uh, translations soon of a uh, uh, Garifuna um, author. So yeah, I think this is this this work is happening, and it's it's very exciting. And I should say that you know um, uh, b- before I wrote translating poetry, translating blackness, I think a few years ago at AWP uh, and at other places. I've, I've tried to uh, advocate for translating, you know, all writers of all uh, backgrounds, particularly writers of color, of different backgrounds who are not being translated into uh, into uh, English. Because, of course, what ends up happening is if you're translated into English, that increases your likelihood of being translated into other languages uh, around the globe because of the, the English language market, market is so big and so powerful. Um, in terms of blackness, yeah, I mean it's it's a it's a it's a it's a complex question. Uh, I mean, I've also I also translate from uh, French uh, and Spanish, and I've translated. So, for example, I've translated uh, the uh, um, Dominican writer Matteo Morrison. Uh, I've uh, translated um, uh, Alain Maboncourt, the great, uh, very, very famous now contemporary uh, Frank Congolese Frank uh, French author. Um, and I mean, it's it's really sort of interesting to see how they are working through ideas of of blackness. But what 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 becomes clear is that there is a kind of conversation that's always happening uh, because of the circulation of culture and cultures, right? So it's not nothing is static, right? And and people often the thing I think really I find very powerful is that people overseas are often very aware of what's going on in the U.S., whereas we tend not to be so aware because, of course, you know, it, it's a we're more of a centripetal uh, 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 society. Um, people come here. <laughs> we, we, we travel, but right, we don't. Really, but, 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 you know, it, and of course, you know, the gatekeepers don't let a lot of stuff in. Uh, you have to hunt for it. I mean, it gets here, but we have to hunt for it. But I mean, it's, it's sort of fascinating to see how these conversations and dialogues are always happening. And even sort of ways that people talk about themselves, you know. Um, so the use of the term black alongside you know, noir, let's say, a negro and preto in uh, uh, Portuguese or a negro and preto in Spanish, right? It's, I think it's just so interesting, right? You know, when, when that English term appears and what that means, what that signifies and the kind of power and resistance that it, it contains. Th- these are all things I think are very interesting. Hmm. Yeah. So, so what can we expect from you next? I know at one point you had talked about wanting to write counter-narratives through the civil rights movement and up into the present. Is, is that the next book that we're going to see, or is, is there something else that we're going to see next? No, that's not. I, uh, uh, maybe at some point. Uh, I'm, I'm working on uh, two um, 
two prose projects. Uh, I, don't, I don't, you know, I, I think Samuel Delaney once pointed out that it's probably not a good idea to talk too much about things that aren't done. But yeah, I have two two prose projects. Um, I guess you could call them novels. So I, I hope to finish them sooner rather than later. Yeah. yeah. Well, thank you for being on the show today, John. Thank you so much, David. We're talking today to writer, poet, and translator John Keane about his books, Counter Narratives, Playland, and Grind. You've been listening to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. Today's program was recorded at the studios of KBOO, volunteer-powered, non-commercial, listener-sponsored, full-strength community radio from Portland, Oregon, at kboo.fm. More of John Keane's work can be found at his blog, Jay's Theater, at jstheater.blogspot.com. You can also find his addition to the growing archive of bonus material at patreon.com slash between the covers, where John Keane reads from his out-of-print poetry chapbook, Playland, and a new poem called Words. Finally, I'd like to thank Imre Lodbrog and Barbara Browning for creating this outro. Their album, Imre Lodbrog, A Sapatita Me, can be found on iTunes, and Barbara Browning's trove of ukulele covers can be found at soundcloud.com slash Barbara Browning.